Welcome to The Raven Narratives. I'm Sarah Severson. And I'm Tom Yoder. The stories you're about to hear were told at our Story Slam in December of 2018 at the Durango Arts Center when the theme was family. Story Slams feature willing audience members telling stories off of the cuff. Our first story is told by Amber de Herrera. Wow. Woo! My heart is beating so fast. So, um, I have a huge family. I'm from a family of seven. I'm the oldest, but this isn't about my family. So, this is about the bigger family. Um, I'm a nurse, and um, I, uh, two years ago, took care of a a man who came to me on hospice, and I didn't know him, and um, I'm sorry, I'm nervous. <laughs> um, he was unconscious, but still breathing. His heart was still beating, but um, he was not present. Um, however, he was. I immediately was drawn to him, and um, I was drawn to him immediately when I learned that he was a musician and he was a songwriter and um, a bass player, a guitar player for a uh, famous band and I, um, just privacy, I will not give you his name, but um, my father is a um, musician and um, so I was immediately drawn to him and to take care of him and I, I did that, and in the meantime, I met his family, and um, I was also drawn to them. They brought their musical instruments in, they played music, they sang to him, and a, a lot of times they couldn't be with him during some of the hours, and so I stayed with him, and I sat with him. Um, his son, he lived in the town that I'm from. And we started talking, and he's like, where are you from? Who's your family? Where do you live? And I said, well, you know, when I grew up, I lived on Brookfield Lane in Pueblo, Colorado. And he's like, I lived on Brookfield Lane. I was like, what the heck? And I said, what's your address? And um, he told me, and I said, well, you lived across the street from me. And <laughs> I was probably in fourth grade when he lived across the street from me. And um, I, I used to roller skate a lot. And so I told him, do you remember? All, and I'm from a family of seven, so all of us used to roller skate and rollerblade around. And I'm like, do you remember all the kids rollerblading by your house? And he's like, yes. And uh, so immediately there was this crazy connection of closeness to them, and um, this person um, that was passing away took his time, and you know his family came and visited him, and it was like he was waiting for people to come and see him, and finally, somebody that I asked him, you know, I asked his family, is there someone that he would want to see? 
and hear from before he passed away. And they were like, yes, this person. And finally, this person called, and I was able to hold the phone to his ear, and he listened to him um, say goodbye. And in the next hour, um, this man passed, and I was with him. And I went home, and the minute I got out of my car, I heard an owl. There was an owl um, outside of my house, and I knew, I knew that it was him. And um, I, in the next couple of days, I communicated with his son, and I let him know, you know, I got home and I had this happen and I just feel like it's connected and we're connected and um, fast forward a year later, one of his daughter's husbands was in a really bad accident and I got to talk to her and I got to tell her that story and she said, um, my granddaughter had owls come to her constantly over the last year and she said, he is your guardian angel. And I said, thank you. And um, that's my greater family. And thank you for listening. Thanks, Amber, for sharing that story with us. Our next storyteller at the Durango Arts Center was Janelle Stewart. Well, I'm still trying to decide what story to tell because it has to be about my brother, and there's a lot of stories, but um, I think there was one night where I realized how much he meant to me, and that was, um, I was awakened probably about two in the morning by my dog, Benta, barking, and um, I was like, man, she's been doing that a lot lately, and... um, but tonight it just sounds different. And so I kind of was yelling at her actually <laughs> to be quiet, but then I started thinking, why is she doing this? So then I looked at my phone that I'd been trying to charge and saw that it was only at 20%, so I was like, why isn't it charging? And then I turned my room light on, but it didn't come on. <laughs> and so suddenly my brain immediately kicks on and I'm like, okay, I'm pretty sure that that guy that was let out of prison back east, you guys remember from a few years ago, <laughs> who murdered women and served his time or you know, sexually assaulted, I can't remember exactly the story, but he'd applied to purgatory and <laughs> he was, you know, did his time as a community, you know, we were just, he was living at the Iron Horse and women were given warnings not to go out and, you know, on certain trails and so, I was convinced that this guy was outside my door. <laughs> and I'm not sure quite why, but that's, that's what my brain was telling me, that he was out there. And um, so immediately I grab my dog and I um, run into the bathroom <laughs> with my phone. <laughs> and I'm like, why am I doing this? Maybe so her bark will vibrate more and he'll be more scared. But um, <laughs> so I call my brother. And I'm talking to him, and I'm like, my electricity's out. I know this guy's out there. And he's like, you know, 
it's one in the morning for him. He's in California, and he's just listening and kind of like, okay, Janelle, um, calm down. I'm not really sure, you know, are you really awake? You know, this doesn't sound like you. <laughs> and um, have you been drinking? And <laughs> so, um, so we start chatting, and then he's like, you know, I'm like, well, I, I'm just so scared, and what do I do? And he's like, well, have you thought about calling 911? And I'm like, well, no. <laughs> because um, I thought that you could always help me out. <laughs> and because he kind of always did. And um, But then I started, but I was like, Chucky, which is what I like to call him. <laughs> I was like, you, you have to understand that Greta's been, or Benta, Greta's her granddaughter, Benta's been barking on and off for the last few weeks. And I said, a few weeks ago, um, I came home and saw that someone had been trying to get in my house. And um, so I called the cops to see. I was like, well, it's probably too late, but what should I do? And they said, oh, we'll just increase cop cars on your road. And, um, and then the next time your dog barks like that, just give us a call. So I was like, OK. And so um, I, if, like a week later, she was barking. And so I called. And um, the lady's like, well, are you at such and such address? And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, well, there's a cop car out there. And I was like, well, that's weird, because I just called. <laughs> and um, so long story short, she's like, she's like, I said, well, OK, well, I'll go out and see why he's here, because I don't know why he's in my driveway. So I go out to the window, and he leaves. <laughs> and, um, and so. It was pretty interesting because I was like, well, that's odd, you know. And then, then again, my brain's like, well, why is this cop? Is he a dirty cop? You know, I'm thinking all these things. <laughs> and uh, so I realized, and then I was like, well, that's Benta's person bark because I know her animal bark. And then I realized that's her person bark. She was barking at the cop who never even came to my door to see how I was, even though I hadn't even called yet. But anyways. <laughs> um, <laughs> So this was all going through my head, and then when my dog barked again, I was like, well, the cop didn't help me last time, so I'm just going to call my brother, because what I realized was that my brother has always been my rock. And um, I also realized that I was crazy, because when I came out of the bathroom, I looked up my street, and all the lights were out, and so clearly the electricity had gone out, and... <laughs> The man from back east who'd been let out of prison really wasn't at my house. But um, <laughs> anyways, I just think that I, I do have an amazing family, but I've often felt like they didn't understand me. But the person who has always understood me is my brother, Chucky. And so I just feel that whenever I call him, he's somehow going to be there for me, and he usually is. <laughs> Thanks, Janelle, for telling that story. Our next featured storyteller from the Durango Arts Center event was Heather Hoaxed. Oh, good thing I wore my best sweater. <laughs> so um, I actually had an idea for a totally different story than the one that I'm going to tell you. And 
as I was walking up here, I just thought to myself, like, this is, this is a story that I need to tell. Um, so when I was about six, I, uh, I got off a school bus with my brother, and we lived on this, like, long, really long dirt road in Georgia. So either we would get off the school bus and we'd walk the mile to the house, or if the weather was bad, my, one of my, my mom or my dad would either be there or a, uh, a neighbor <laughs> who was like a mile away <laughs> would, would pick us up. But this day was weird because um, the car was there and both my mom and my dad were in the car. And I was only six, so I didn't really you know, think much about it, but um, it just felt like something was wrong. And we got home to our house and um, my dad took my brother and I, who was only a year older than me, on his knees and said, you know, we have some bad news and um, your grandmother has died. And, you know, I was really little, so I was like, my mom was crying, and um, my dad seemed pretty sad, and I knew that it was sad, but, you know, it didn't quite click as to, to how tragic it was. And, um, and my grandmother was, was young. She was only 61 at the time, and she was very healthy. She, like, swam in the ocean. She had the Georgia state record for the half marathon at like the age of 60 and um, yeah she was an amazing woman so I didn't really understand like like how did she die and uh, and so it turns out that my grandparents had <clears throat> spent like their retirement years hiking the Appalachian Trail from Georgia to Maine and they would do it in little chunks so like you know two three weeks at a time and sometimes we would be part of it we would drive up and drop them off or pick them up and um, and I remember being really small and there's they lived in the coast on the coast of Georgia and there's absolutely like it's completely flat and so they would fill their backpacks with like bags of sand and then like hike up the fire towers and down and my brother would be and I would be like playing at the base of the fire tower like <laughs> what are grandma and grandpa doing I don't know they're weird <laughs> like, whatever um, so anyway, so they were on the very last uh, part. They had done the entire Appalachian Trail except for the last about 140 miles. And um, there's a, a very large river up in Maine, and it's just before you get to the 100-mile wilderness, and it's, um, it's called the Kennebec River. And at the time, um, the only way to get across the Kennebec River was to, to ford it. And... Um, and it had a pretty fast current, and I think it's like uh, dam controlled at times. And um, and somehow, as my grandparents were crossing the river, uh, something happened, and we still to this day don't know exactly what it was. But um, but my grandmother drowned, and uh, my grandpa got to the other side, and he looked back, and you know couldn't couldn't save her, and so that's what happened. And and again, I was very small at the time, and so I didn't really quite understand, you know, how meaningful that was and, and um, how serious it was. And my grandpa got remarried within a couple of years, and so I had a step-grandma, and life went on. And, um, you know, I knew that my grandmother had died, but I didn't really, we didn't really talk about her that much, and no one really brought it up. And then when I was, you know, probably about five or six years ago, I started to hear, like, more and more snippets about my grandma Alice, and um, and I like never really felt like I fit in with my family. Like I was kind of always the the weird one, and um, everyone else was very focused. And you know, my brother went straight through college, and I was like, you know, flitting around doing my thing. And um, 
And then I heard that my grandmother did some kind of off-the-wall things. Like, apparently, she rode her bike across Mexico when she was, like, 18. So it was, like, the 1930s. <laughs> like, whoa, really? Like, that's so cool. Um, and, uh, and, then it, and then I found this picture, and there's this, like, really handsome Mexican man in there. I was like, who's that? <laughs> Go, Grandma. Um, but no one really talks about it. And so... <laughs> And so about three years ago, I started to get this like feeling within me that I needed to, to do something um, like an adventure. And I, and I wasn't really sure what it was. And then um, someone had unearthed all these photos from when my grandparents were hiking the Appalachian Trail. And, and it occurred to me that, that what I really wanted to do was um, finish my grandmother's hike. So. I sent an email out to my family and I said, hey, like, I want to go do this thing, you know, does anybody want to come along? <laughs> and uh, my, my mom and, uh, and my aunt actually were the ones that ended up saying, you know, yeah, we really want to be a part of this. My mom had four siblings and so one of her sisters. And uh, I invited my brother and, and his response was, that sounds cool that many days with you and mom and Aunt Norma? No, thank you. <laughs> and my dad's response was, I would love to be on that trail just following. <laughs> Hear what you guys have to say. So we ended up deciding that we were, oh, and this was actually a really cool thing. My, um, the Appalachian Trail Conservancy actually had the last um, trail log that my, my grandparents had had signed, and it was at the, the shelter right before um, the Kennebec River. So we arranged it to where um, we had this guide who agreed to, and it was kind of an odd, like, off-the-beaten-path-like place to start the trail that no one would really start it at, but I told him this story, and, and he was like, oh, I know that story. I remember when that happened to your grandmother, um, and absolutely will take you to, the, to that place. So we actually started um, at the shelter where my, my grandmother spent her last night. And, um, and we, we got to the banks of the, the Kennebec River. And I hadn't really you know, fathomed like, like how this moment would, would feel for me or, or for my mom, who had never been there. My aunt had been there, but she, um, it was huge. <laughs> it was a huge river. And I just. It, couldn't believe that you know this was how people would get across it back then. And, and since her death, um, they actually have instituted a, a canoe crossing. And there's a, ferry, a ferryman who takes people across um, the Kennebec River. And there's actually a, a white hash mark on the canoe, so it's the proper Appalachian Trail, so that no one feels like they're cheating. Um, so, so we we got to the river and you know we we just had like this moment of peace and there was nobody else around and um you know my my aunt kind of went down one side and my mom kind of went down the other and i just sort of sat there and and thought about like what this moment would have been like and um and we ended up crossing the river and and on the other side we all picked up little pieces of of rock found some pebbles um, very small ones because we had a long way to walk, <laughs> so we didn't want to carry too heavy stuff. And um, and then we hiked the 160 miles from the Kennebec River up to the top of Katahdin that my my grandmother didn't get to do. 
and, um, and we placed our pebbles up. There's a huge, I don't know if anyone here has ever been to the top of Katahdin, but there's this giant cairn, <laughs> bringing it back. Um, maybe your dog did it. <laughs> it's huge. Like, that would be impressive. Um, and we, we stuck our stones in. And, and, but throughout that whole journey, that 160 miles, like the stories that I heard like tumbling out of my mom's mouth that I never would have heard had I not gone on this journey with them, and stories from my aunt, that I, you know, that I never would have learned before and about how my parents met and stories about my grandma and some of the just crazy stuff that she used to do um, back in the day. And it was just like this gift and, and we felt like my grandma had just led us all down this path and, um, and it was just meant to be that way. Thank you. Thank you so much, Heather. Our next storyteller at the Family Slam event at the Durango Arts Center was Matt Cornell. How's everybody doing tonight? Good. Uh, I got a story uh, uh, relating to the theme, and it's more of a holiday theme. And this starts in the uh, first summer I spent in Durango. Oh, and this was a year after I became a student of Fort Lewis, you know, going from just north of Dallas, Texas, to the small town of Durango. So you can imagine what a seamless transition that was. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and familiarity is important to me. Hey, and so... It was uh, sort of an interesting first year. And I grew kind of excited when I heard my aunt, uncle, and cousins were coming to town for a summer trip. Yep. So, and they took me uh, rafting and horseback riding, which were you know, interesting for hers, particularly for horses. And uh, <laughs> as the family host in town, I treated, hated them to a ride on the railroad using my season pass for my own ticket, my volunteer vouchers for three of them, and I paid for the youngest with my own money. Money. Hey, and I love to treat them to that because, you know, I am a big train buff, as you can see. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, we all had a great time, right. and they loved the town and appreciated how I came to enjoy living here for the past eight years. And that trip led to what I would consider my greatest gift ever. Even into those waning weeks of summer, and this was weeks after they left back to Texas, as I had an idea for a great gift. So on the train, they took pictures of many groups, and we got all five of us together in one. Now, now normally I don't buy the pictures, because if I had 
but one for each and every trip I took on the train, my wall would be plastered with them. <laughs> uh, but I took the opportunity to get that particular picture from that particular trip. And I paid extra attention to the tickets. And not only did I get the picture, I decided to add something to it, a bit more flavor to it. And that was a border of fall colors. Because that was my favorite time of the year to ride. Because that would be what I would consider an artist's season to ride. All the colors all over the mountains. Okay, I got the picture. Now, what to frame it in? Because if you want a picture that lasts, it helps if you have a frame. <laughs> so, I went to a local shop here in town, one that was top recommended, and, you know, there's all sorts of preset frames and all sorts of uh, custom frames, but there was one that really stood out, and it was a masterpiece called a Roma frame. It was really beautiful. And after cross-checking with a bunch of others, I decided you know, that was the one. And that frame had a story in itself. It had been sitting on the shop's shelves for three straight years. <laughs> so um, it was an $80 frame. They would sell it to me for $50. You know, age tends to do that to the prices. <laughs> <laughs> And crucially, because this was an important requirement, it, the frame fit over the picture. <laughs> you, know, you know, I would like a custom frame, but, you know, it has to fit that size of picture. So I had all the pieces, and it fit beautifully. Hey, you know. The picture of the five of us on the train, that fall border, that Roma frame. Hey, and I wrapped it beautifully. And back then, of course, I had a tradition to drive back to Texas because it was three weeks during the college Christmas break. And so you know, I drove back to Texas, and it's a beautiful drive. And uh, Visited with the family, and got to exchanging presents, you know, talking about what all's been going on, this, that, and the other. And finally, I get to my aunt and uncle and cousins, and my present for them, all four of them. And they unwrapped it together, and there it was. The picture, the fall border, the Roma frame. And they absolutely adored it. <laughs> and... I'm quoting my uncle, which says it all. That picture will always have a place at our house. Yes. So, and that gift, I consider my greatest Christmas present of all time. It was far and away my most expensive. <laughs> but that wasn't the important bit. The moral of the story is, you know, the greatest gift to your family does not have to be fancy. It doesn't even have to be many. It just has to be well thought out and well worth the effort. Thank you very much. <laughs>
Thanks, Matt, for telling that story. Our next featured storyteller from the Durango Arts Center event where the theme was family was Melissa May. So I have a, I have a pretty fresh story for all of you that took place starting last week. Um, my family all lives back east. I grew up in Pennsylvania, and most of my uh, dad's side of the family is in Indiana, um, but my fiance lives in Denver, and so uh, this Thanksgiving we were always planning to spend in Denver with his family, um, but the week before Thanksgiving I was talking to my mom on the phone, and she was talking about how they were excited to drive to Indiana, and on Saturday after Thanksgiving it was going to be my grandfather's 90th birthday. Um, and they were going to have this big party, and my grandmother had turned 90 back in June, and their 70th wedding anniversary is coming up on December 12th. So they were going to have this big party the Saturday after Thanksgiving, and no one had told me because they knew I wasn't coming for Thanksgiving. Um, and so it was, the I think, the Friday before Thanksgiving when I just had this idea in my head that I was like, what if I flew from Denver to Indianapolis on Friday after Thanksgiving. And it's not Durango, so it doesn't cost an extra $250 to fly anywhere. <laughs> um, so I was like, I could actually get a legitimately affordable flight. And so I was in the middle of work. I was supposed to be working on some deadline. And I look up the flights, and there was one ticket left on the Friday morning nonstop flight from Denver to Indianapolis, and one ticket left on the Indianapolis to Denver flight Sunday morning so I could get back in time to get a ride back home to Durango. So I was like, okay, this is a sign. Like, I have to, I have to go. Like, it's going to be worth the $500 or $400 or whatever. Like, whatever else I was going to spend that on, I'll remember this more getting to surprise my family. So I did it. I just, like, clicked by, and I called my dad, and I was like, you're going to be the only one that knows, but you have to drive and pick me up at the airport at these times. And he was like, this is really cool. I'm going to be your co-conspirator. And um, he had to tell his brother. And so somebody else would know. And he would have an excuse. He would be like, oh, I'm going to hang out with my brother. But really, he was coming to pick me up at the airport. And so um, Friday morning after Thanksgiving, I go through this. My dad picks me up at the airport. And I walk into my grandparents' house. And immediately, the look on my grandmother's face was worth all of the money that I'd spent on the plane ticket. And she told me that in her 90 plus years, she had never been so surprised. And I was like, okay, this is like, I was supposed to be here. This is all worth it. Like, whatever else happens is just icing on the cake. Um, so that, that night, um, I was just, I stayed at, I slept at my aunt and uncle's house. And uh, my brother calls me on the phone. And he was acting like just a little bit strange. I was like, maybe he had a drink or something like that. And he was, he was like, no, like I just, like I just need to talk to you. I, my symptoms from my diabetes are coming back. And to give you a little bit of background on my brother, um, he is, I guess, the shortest way to describe is a hippie, natural, living person. Um, but he <laughs> goes his own direction, and he has his own way of doing things. And he's been incredibly successful with it. Like, things that are described as not possible by other people, he has done. And so I'm like, I have full trust in you. But he was kind of calling to, kind of, to confess that his, his symptoms from his diabetes were coming back. His diet wasn't quite working out the way he wanted. And he, the way he was sounding was kind of just strange. Like, he was falling asleep or he had just woken up. And I was like, are you okay? 
And he was like, yes. And I was like, have you been testing your blood sugar? And he's like, well, yes. I'm like, are you okay? And he says he is. And I finally I convinced him that he should go to urgent care in the morning. I'm like, and he said, well, I had a fever. And so I'm thinking, okay, maybe he was just sick. But I, I hang up the phone with him, and I just don't feel right about it. And so I, I text him a few minutes later, I love you. And then the next morning I wake up and I say, I text him again. I'm like, let me know how it goes at urgent care. I hope you're feeling better after you got some rest. And so that day, it's my grandfather's 90th birthday. There's all these family things planned. We all went out to lunch. He wanted to get 90% off his pizza at this place. And so it was like all these very structured events throughout the day. And the big, the big party with the whole family is that evening. And so there was a gap between the 90% off lunch and the party where my, my dad and my mom and I just went for a walk. It was a beautiful day. And we're walking, and then my mom's phone rings, and it's my brother. And so she answers, and the voice on the phone isn't my brother, and it's the paramedics. And they said, we've we found your son. He's at his friend's house, and he's unresponsive. And so immediately, I just, like, can't function, because I, I knew something was wrong, and I... I didn't tell him to go that night, and so he's with the paramedics. Um, my mom says he's diabetic. You need to test his blood sugar, and they say, okay, we're on route to the hospital. We'll, we'll, we'll test his blood sugar. We'll, we'll take care of it, and so this is an hour before the big 90th birthday anniversary celebration, and so all of us are like, okay, they're going to get his blood sugar stabilized. He'll be okay. We have to go celebrate 90 years of happiness and 70 years of happy marriage of my grandparents and so all of us just sort of take a deep breath and it was still a surprise that I was there to the rest of the family so I'd do all the happy hugging and like like oh I would explain the whole I bought the flight at the last minute story and we go through the whole party it's beautiful it's wonderful and then we get home and my mom had left several messages with the hospital trying to get updates and they finally to get back to us that he's in a diabetic coma and um, because of some of the sort of miraculous self-healing that my brother's done in the past, like we are extremely optimistic. He's gone through all of these crazy things in the past. His appendix burst, his, he got hit by a car and his bike, and he like he magically healed himself with yoga and Reiki. And we were like, we believe in you, that you can heal yourself, so like this is gonna be fine. And so the, the plan had already been that my dad would take me to the airport for my 6 a.m. flight back to Denver. Um, and so my parents just decide they're going to drive home back to Pittsburgh in the morning and, and figure out what to do next. And so the middle of the night, I'm like still thinking about this, and I, it all of a sudden just really occurs to me that my brother might not wake up and that I could, I could just be without him. And I don't prescribe any specific religion, but I know that... He really believes in the power of positive energy. And when he's feeling stressed out, he goes out and he lays on the ground. And he's in touch with Pachamama. And so that's what I did. I went out in my grandparents' yard. And um, my cousin Zachary, when he was 26, passed away from cancer. And my grandparents planted a tree for him in the yard. And so I don't, I don't know if I believe in God or any specific God, but I went outside and I laid out on Pachamama, and I prayed to Zachary to please 
please send Kevin home to us. He wasn't ready to go yet, and he can wave hello and tell him that he's got plenty more work to do. Um, so I just went out there as long as I could, and then when I, by the time I'd come back inside, my mom had woken everybody up and said, one of you is getting on a plane tomorrow to go to Fort Lauderdale to, to be with him in the hospital. And so my dad, my mom doesn't drive, so he, my dad volunteered to be the one that goes. So he was already taking me to the airport. So the next morning we're driving to the airport and I just, the closer and closer we get, the more terror I see in my dad's face. And I decided, sitting there in the car, I was like, if I can get a seat on that plane, I'm going with you. And so... God bless Southwest Airlines. I walked in the door and I walked up crying to the counter and I said, my brother's in the hospital in Fort Lauderdale and I need to be on this flight. And they transferred it without any fees. Um, they, can get, they get my vote for the future. Um, but again, as soon as I saw the look on my dad's face, I was like, this is the right thing to do. And when we, when we got there, it turned out it was the first flight we could have even gotten to Florida. And we got to the hospital, he was in intensive care, and we walk in the room and we say, Kevin, it's us, it's Melissa, it's daddy. And he opened his eyes and he has a breathing tube and everything and he smiles at us and I'm like, it's, this, is our, this is all worth it. Like there was no other possible course of events other than me being at this surprise party in Indiana and ending up in, in Fort Lauderdale. And so we, we ended up spending four days in intensive care with him. My mom made it down on the second day. Um, I, I flew home on Wednesday, and on Thursday morning, he got out of intensive care um, and is doing a lot better. Each day was better than the next, but um, on, my, on my flight home on Wednesday, um, all I could really think about was at my grandparents' party, um, one of the things that my uncle had had them talk about was, in the chapters of your life, like, what would be the different chapters in your life? And I was like, in your book, this is going to be one of my chapters, and it would be called Extreme Family Bonding. <laughs> um, we, I did more crying and bonding with my parents than in my entire life combined um, this week. And um, one of the things that my grandfather said at the party um, was that his, his wisdom that he could pass on after 90 years was that life is memories. And so the you're not going to remember what you spent $500 on on a new bike or a coat or something, but like you're going to remember the look on the face of the people you love in these situations. And so I just knew this was, this was all going to happen, and it did happen exactly the way it needed to. So thank you. Thank you, Melissa. Our next storyteller at the Durango Arts Center when the theme was family at our story slam was Shane Nelson. Uh, we're going to call this one uh, Boy with Two Names. Uh, Sean Small was born in Boulder, Colorado on a fall day in 1970 when Boulder was cool. Uh, Sean Small was the product of 2,000 years of Catholicism, Irish immigration, uh, adoption, abandonment, neglect, uh, giving something up that you cherish that you can't. So Sean Small came into the earth uh, 
on that day, and his mother gave him up. And a couple days later, she took him back. A week later, she gave him up. A couple weeks later, she gave him back. The torment of the young Carol Logan, whose truly only sin was being 20 and falling in love with a Greg Almond lookalike named Ricky Small, four years her elder. <laughs> Drove a Chevy truck, wore a lot of flannels. He was, a, he, by all accounts, he was a great man. So Sean Small came into the earth. Uh, the name Sean is an old Gaelic name. It goes way back in the language. It means a gracious gift from God. Uh, Sean and Shane are the same derivative of that same name, which both mean a gracious gift from God. So the people that picked that young boy up were short, liberal, idealistic, kind, loving, supportive, uh, let's, let's see if he can figure out himself kind of parents. <laughs> Sometimes you need a little more structure. They had no idea what they were getting. Um, they named this young man Shane Nelson. Shane Nelson walked into the world uh, with quite possibly feelings of abandonment already. Who knows? Uh, but apparently he could light up any room that he walked into. And when the parents that took him in could not get along anymore, could not pay the bills, could not function in this society in this, under this umbrella we call marriage, uh, they, they separated, causing young Shane Nelson to feel, this world hurts, and if this world hurts, I think I'm going to be in charge of the hurt. So instead of taking it, begin giving it. That's a, way too much information for a boy this tall. Now somewhere in the earth, back in the coast of California, Carol Logan, who was forced to leave her home because of the Irish guilt, because she was unwed, because it is frowned upon, and the greatest crime a young lady could ever commit was falling under the influence to some young man's charms who has no intentions of sticking around. So this young boy walks the earth. He learns his lesson. He, he decides the privilege adopted, orphaned, abandoned, uh, left, and chosen kids have is that they can create their own stories. They can take every Disney movie, add some Tarantino, put in Sean Penn, and you got yourself a fucking movie. <laughs> like, like, you can be like, yep, my dad is a pirate who is, is fighting great social injustice, pillaging some castles. My mother is wondering upon horseback as she writes great screenplays how she will find her child again. Those things aren't always true. One thing a young man knows is that you need roots. You do need to have a place in this world. It is one thing to set your sail and head out into the ocean free and ready to see what comes. It's also another thing to know the port from which you came. Uh, my entire life, Shane Nelson knew he wanted to find his dad. He wanted to find out why is, is, is my first thought rebellion or defiance or pushing back? Why do I seek out things to run as fast as I can into and just get obliterated by instead of like finishing first? Because that's, that's, that's compelling. It's a drive. As I grew older and filed the paperwork to find my family, uh, I realized 
I wanted to find my mom. I wanted to tell my mom, thank you. I wanted to tell her what you did saved my life. What you did gave me everything I have, no matter how much resentment or uh, anger and, and like fight and fire derived from those years. I wanted to thank her. I wanted to tell her I was okay, I was safe, and I've never gone a day in my life without knowing I was totally loved. And as I understood men and women more, as I grew into being an adult, that was what was important. Dad could be a myth. That was okay. The day came uh, after a three-year search when a phone call came. And you're going to remember like two or three phone calls in your life. You'll never forget them. This was the first one. I found your mom. Do you want me to call her? Fuck yes, I do. <laughs> I signed up for this like three fucking years ago. <laughs> like, call her. And she was like, okay. And the woman who was appointed by the courts to do this search and find her who was not allowed to give me any information other than your name was Sean. Your name was Sean. And I did research on Sean because that's the only clue. And I found out it's all the same thing. And she said, you be careful tonight. She was a pretty smart lady. I happened to be in Lake Powell on the boat dock on a payphone, um, looking at my friends who were like, let's go. I said, all right, I'll call you tomorrow. Got a ski boat ride in tomorrow morning, uh, the night before. Uh, there's not too many times in your life you're gonna lay and look at the stars and know that tomorrow you're gonna know who your mom is. And I laid there with, with, the, most, with the best friends the best friends, and they shuttled me back in the next day, and I called, and uh, she answered, and she's like, when you're adopted, the, the, and you search for your family, the thing, you, the thing that hurts you inside, the thing that like, keeps you like one step back is being rejected twice, being the greatest secret, being the result of a really fucking bad night for a woman, or being possibly a miracle. And she answered the phone and she said, talk to your mom. She can't wait to meet you. Whew. My girlfriend was standing over there with all my friends. She can't wait to meet me. <laughs> they start drinking. The next thing was right now, uh, they're trying to tell your 10-year-old sister that she has an older brother. Even the, like, the best mullet is going to melt down <laughs> when you hear those words. And uh, my sister was 10 in that moment, and my mom had married my dad's best friend because the next sentence was, your dad is dead. And she goes, are you okay? This woman was a godsend. And I said, I really am. It makes perfect sense. Because somewhere, somehow, the, the, the line of what looks like things like alcoholism, or drug addiction, or defiance, or the inability to accept help is really part of an ancient fucking line that has moved this whole thing forward so many times. And in a culture, the absence of positive ways to express that defiant energy, like how big am I, where do I fit in the world, where do I wanna be, and how can I do that? And I think I can take you. Like, how do you express that? Those are healthy, 
healthy things for a young man. By finding my family, I found out every leaf on the tree was riddled with rebellion. And the choices made in the absence of positive social choices were drugs and alcohol and darkness and fights. My dad died on the 101 in California off the Avila Beach exit. I sat there one day and talked to him. And he said, everything's going to be okay. And that is family. Thanks, Shane, for telling that story. Our last featured storyteller from the Durango Arts Center event, where the theme was family, is Tom Garcia. Here's Tom's story. So several years ago, well, I'm from a big family, too. I'm the oldest of seven, also. And... uh, yeah, there's seven of us. I'm the oldest. So several years ago, my dad moved to Las Vegas with his wife. And um, I always called her his wife. I never referred to her as, her, as my stepmom. And, um, and while they were there, they met this woman who was helping them. You know, she was helping them with household matters and helping his wife with um, health issues. And she was helping him out financially also. And um, it wasn't long before we realized that she was helping herself to, her, to their finances. And the interesting thing is my uncle, who is um, my dad's younger brother, um, he was more astute financially. He had investments in real estate, and, but he got involved in this triad. And um, so long story short, she was taking them for thousands of dollars. And um, for my dad, it turned out to be tens of thousands. For for my uncle, it was in the hundreds. And um, we were all up in arms. I mean, we were trying to figure out what's going on. We were helping him at first. And, um, you know, finally I got on the phone with my dad. And I'm like, Dad, what's going on? You know, I already knew a lot of the story. There were life insurance policies. There were all these expenses. She was gambling, and she was a big winner. You know, she'd come home with a roll of bills, and my, th- my uncle thought she was, you know, just had great luck. She did. And um, so I- I'm, I'm walking through all this with my dad, and finally he says, he says to me, Tommy, stay out of it. It's none of your business. She's helping us, and I trust her. And I remember looking at the phone. I was, I was so mad I, I was in tears because I felt like I was 10 years old again. And I said, okay, fine, I'm out of it. Don't ask me for any more help. And I hung up the phone, and I told my wife what happened. It was, you know, our whole family knew what happened. And, um, you know, a few months went by, and a few more months, and a year, and then another year. And I didn't communicate with my dad during this time. And I knew things were getting worse, but I was like, you made your bed. You lie in it. And um, so one day I was going to the woods, 
if you remember my story from last time, and I'm walking up the hill, and clear as a bell, this voice says, you need to forgive your father. And I stopped, and I knew this voice, because I've been working with it for several years, and I said, I've already forgiven him, there's nothing more to forgive. I mean, I was clear. And it was dead silence, and then the voice said, you need to forgive him again. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. I had no idea what I was going to do. But I knew, you know, when I go to the woods like this and I go to the fire, and that something is going to happen. I just don't know what. So that night, um, you know, I really broke myself open. And how I think of it is, you know, I stood in a fire that I made and broke my own heart, you know, to see something about myself. And, of course, that's what the voice tells me, you know. We want you to see something about yourself. And what it said was, you blame your father for everything that's wrong in your life. And it was like a knife to my heart with a little twist. And it said, don't you think it's time for that to end? Who else do you give that kind of power to? And if you'll look, you'll see a long line of people in your life that you have not forgiven. And when you begin with your father, you'll start to unravel this long line. And so I looked, and I saw that that was true. And I began the work you know, forgiving the people in my world. And, you know, even as I was there that evening, that night, and I'm thinking about people, this voice is in the back of my head, yes, that one and that one. And I come across someone I was having a particular issue with or really a lot of difficulty with, and they'd say, especially that one. (laughs) And so, you know, so I started the work of that, you know, forgiving my dad. And, um, One day, my sister called out of the blue. She said, this is after several months. She said, Tommy, I think we need to bring Dad home. And I said, you're right. And I knew that it was time and that had I not forgiven him, I would have just said no. And I remember the first time I saw him, he looked like death warmed over, you know, as if something had attached itself to him and was sucking the lifeblood out of him. And, you know, and sure enough, that's what was happening. But over the months as his vitality returned and I could see the light back in his eyes, he even came to live with us for a period of months. And it was the best time that we ever had together. And he knew that when he looked into my eyes, he saw nothing but acceptance and forgiveness and that there was nothing else between us and except love. My dad passed last year, and my mom passed this year. And, um, you know, I know in my own heart that that voice, because I listened to it, it led me to something, into a place that I, I couldn't be today had I not begun that, that path of forgiveness. So, thank you.
Thanks to all the storytellers who shared themselves at our family story slams at the Durango Art Center and Sunflower Theater, and for those venues for providing a space for live storytelling. Thanks as well to Red Scarf Shots Photography, who takes beautiful black and white portraits of our curated storytellers. Find out more at redscarfshots.com. Also thanks to Cortez Web Services and to Mancus Valley Resources, our 501c3 sponsor. You can listen to all of the previous stories told on the Raven Narrative stages on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. Our next live storytelling events will be on April 19th and 20th, when the theme will be Rites of Passage. For more information and to pitch your story, go to ravennarratives.org.